I'd like for the rest of you to turn with me in your Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 6. I have a uh, pre-message. You know what a pre-message is? It's, it's the message before the message. Last week I preached, I think, for almost an hour. How long was it, Carrie? One hour and two minutes. And in one hour and two minutes, I made one comment toward the end that everyone landed on. It took up about 1% of the message. <laughs> Here's what I said. If you are free in Jesus Christ, you ought to be able, if you used to be an alcoholic and you're free and you've been delivered, you ought to be able to go to the bar and uh, not be tempted and, and not, well, you might be tempted, but not drink and become drunk. Something to that effect. And then I said, the sentence everybody forgot, you're not free to go and do as you please, you're free to go and do as God pleases. Everybody heard the first part and landed there. Paul said we could all go to the bar. And do as we please. They, <laughs> they forgot the last part. And I'm thinking, okay, can, let me help you out here a little bit, okay? Because that really exercised a lot of folks. Let me help you out here. The problem most Christians have is having begun in the Spirit, they're trying to be perfected in the flesh. They're trying hard to figure out how to obey God, and they're failing miserably. Until you understand the message that Paul was giving us in Romans 6, if you have a problem with alcohol, please don't go to the bar. If you have a problem with pornography, maybe you need to shut off your internet. You may need to avoid... If you have a problem with lust, you may need to drive around the corner instead of driving by Hooters. That was one of my illustrations. I'm not picking on Hooters. It's just an illustration. If you have a problem with sin and you don't know how to have victory, by all means, avoid the sin. I mean, you know, stay away. But understand, when you do that, that you're recognizing you're not free yet in Christ. You're struggling in bondage. And it's okay to struggle in bondage. Avoid the temptation. But recognize that that is not ultimately going to solve the problem. Because you're still going to struggle with those same temptations and battles. And until you understand the power of God's Spirit to work in you, you're going to continue to fall. But the Galatians were Christians who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and had been told by the Judaizers, now you have to keep the law. And they were doing their dead-level best and failing miserably and the Apostle Paul said, whoever told you that should be cut off from Christ. Having begun in the Spirit, do you think you're going to be made holy in the flesh? It's never going to happen. And I read you Colossians. Do not touch. Do not taste. Do not handle. Advice which seems to be wise. But it is of no benefit against fleshly indulgence. It will not help you in the long run. And in quoting that, we need to recognize when we fill our lives with rules to avoid sin, we're living under law. 
in the flesh, trying to be sanctified by our own power. And you're always going to lose that game. You're always going to lose that game. But, if you can't keep a bottle out of your mouth, don't get near a bottle. Okay? Until you know how in Jesus Christ it's possible to be free. Because it doesn't help <laughs> to keep digging your practical hole deeper in experience, hanging on to some kind of freedom that you only imagine and don't really have. And so, you know, what am I telling you? <laughs> when you've got a choice of evils, pick the lesser one. Better to live under the law and not have a catastrophe than to think you're free in the spirit and, and continue to fall flat on your face. Maybe kill someone driving a car. Maybe rape somebody because your lust got ahead of you. Maybe do something utterly foolish because you, you, don't, you don't get it. And it's much better to live under the law than to live in the cesspool of sin. But you can't win under the law. And that's my point. And when Christ has set you free, you will come to realize that it is not the rules that make you successful in the Spirit. It is the dependence upon the Holy Spirit. I hope that clears that up. I'm not advocating that you go out and deliberately put yourself in sin's way. And the sentence that people didn't hear was, you are not free to go and do as you please. You are free to go and do as God pleases. And the problem is, we want to do what we want. <laughs> and you can't do that. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Master, what does that mean? If not, He's in charge, I'm not. So, that's the pre-message. Now the message. Romans chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. Follow along with me, please. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under law, but under grace. Now here's where we are in the book of Romans. Up until this point, in this segment, Paul has been giving us a doctrinal foundation, an understanding of our freedom in Christ because we have died with him to the old nature, we have been buried with him, we have been raised with him to walk in newness of life, we have been set free from the law of sin and death, we have been delivered from its power, the cat has been declawed, to use last week's illustration, and we have been raised to walk in a new life, and all of that is history. That happened to us in Jesus Christ. Paul frequently does this in all of his letters. If you read them, he gives us the doctrinal foundation before he makes the practical application. The reason is we need to understand what is true before we can act upon it. And so Paul has laid the foundation for us of who we are in Christ now, in verse 12 and the rest of this chapter and all of 7 and a good part of 8, 
He is going to deal with the how. Now we know the what. I'm free in Christ. I died with him. I've been raised with him. That's the what. When, when he died on the cross and when I was converted, it was applied to me. You know, we know that. But now we come to the how. How does it work? And many Christians are asking that question. How does it work? I hear you, but I don't see the evidence. Well, we're missing some of the application. And we begin in verse 12 this morning to look at how it works. And I want to remind you what verse 12 says, because we're going to wrap up the message this morning with this. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. And I want to start out today by reminding us of a statement that I have heard since my childhood. I've heard it from people all through my ministry. I have heard it from every denomination. I grew up a Southern Baptist. I think this was one of our mottos. But besides that, I've heard it from all denominations. I've heard it from all backgrounds. I've heard it from Christians in every venue. And here's the statement. As long as I'm in the flesh, I am going to continue in sin. Is that true or is it false? Is it true or is it false? Well, <laughs> okay, I'm hearing true and false. <laughs> and that's the problem. And here's, the, and here's part of the crux of the matter. We are using different terms when we're talking about it. We don't all mean the same thing. And so we make a statement like this, and some people mean one thing and some people mean another. If you understand the flesh and sin in one way, it's a true statement. If you understand it in another way, it's a false statement. But what we're talking about is crucially important for you and me to recognize what is possible in Jesus Christ. Hold that thought, Todd. I may get to it through the message. It's possible in Jesus Christ if we understand what this is really all about. The first area of confusion in this statement is, as long as I'm in the flesh. What do you mean by the flesh? Do you mean this body? Or do you mean the carnal nature? And is the flesh, of which Paul speaks in many of his letters, is the flesh the same as this human body? Are they the same thing? Are they synonyms? That's the question we have to answer. Most of the time when people make this statement, what they mean is, as long as I'm in the body before the rapture or the resurrection, I'm going to sin. As if the body were the problem. And I want to talk about that this morning because it's very important that we understand what Paul means and other biblical writers when they refer to the flesh in terms of sin and the carnal nature. First of all, the confusion lies in the association of the body with sins of the physical appetite and frankly the persistence of Eastern <clears throat> dualism 
That confuses our thinking. You've seen the symbol, it's so popular now, used to not be so popular, but now it's, it's the circle with the little squiggly, one side's black, one side's white, and it's got a white dot and a black dot, you know, so it's the yin and the yang. That comes out of Eastern dualism. And Eastern thinking basically says this, there are equal and opposing forces in the universe. Frankly, that's the first error. There are not equal and opposing. There are opposing forces, but they are not equal. God is God. And the devil is an opposing force, but he can't even hold a candle to the power of God. When, from our standpoint, it looks pretty potent. But when you're talking about a finite creature who has limited power, and an almighty God who is infinite in power, there is no contest. Okay? But the first misnomer is that there are equal and opposing forces. Some religions and some religious thinkers take that to the next degree. And they make the division according to what is material and what is spiritual. And they say that the materialistic side is bad and the spiritual part is good. That the evil, the, the bad, lies in the physical realm and the good lies in the spiritual realm. And harmony comes when we get the two in balance. That's why that symbol is the way it is. When we get everything in balance, we live in harmony and things go along well. This philosophy is not new, even though many New Agers espouse it. It's not new, it's ancient. The Zoroastrians Persian and Persians believed this kind of a thing. Probably it was the belief of the Magi that came to seek Jesus. Uh, because of their Zoroastrian heritage. It probably had something to do with some of their thinking. I mean, we look at those three kings and we say, wow, how wonderful they were. It's wonderful that they came to seek Jesus, but it doesn't mean where they came from was wonderful. They, they were Zoroastrians, most likely, in their thinking. And the belief is that the material is bad, the spiritual is good. People in the New Testament era had trouble with this. This is one of the reasons why John, in his first letter, says, the one who denies that Jesus has come in the flesh is a liar. Because what they said was, matter is evil, spirit is good, God could not inhabit matter, really. Therefore, the body of Jesus that we saw was merely an apparition. It was a, a phantom. It was a ghost. It was an image that wasn't real. Because God could not inhabit a body. The body is bad. It's evil. And John said, no, that destroys the incarnation. The incarnation is that God came in human flesh and blood. And John starts out his letter by saying, what we have seen with our eyes. What we have heard with our ears. What we have handled with our hands. This is the one who leaned against Jesus at the Last Supper. He didn't fall through. He says, I touched him. I felt him. I saw him. He was a human being. When he appeared in the upper room, he said to Thomas, Put your hand in my side. Touch the prince in my palms. See if I am not real. And so all of the teaching of Scripture is that Christ came in the flesh. 
Well, friends, <laughs> Jesus lived his whole life in the flesh, in the body, and never once sinned. So why is the body the problem? The body's not the problem. But why do we associate the domain of sin with what we call the flesh? Let me explain that to you, because it's real important that you understand this. We were originally made tripart people, tripartite people. We were originally made body, soul, and spirit. Okay? And you go back to the garden for your basic theology here. God took dust from the ground, formed a body, breathed into the nostrils the, the breath, the spirit of life, and that body with God's spirit became a living soul, and the soul is the seat of personality, the mind, the will, the emotions, the inner drives. That's where sin actually reigns. But we were originally designed with a body through which to have communication with the material universe and a spirit with which to have communication with God in the spiritual realm. And we live in these two organs who I am. If I showed up this morning without my body, you wouldn't know that I'm here. I almost did show up this morning without my body. <laughs> my alarm clock got all goofed up with this daylight savings time stuff. I don't know what all happened, but I thought I had two hours. And I looked at the one clock that sets itself by the atomic clock in Colorado, and it said it's 7.25, and I thought, Oh my goodness, I thought it was like an hour before. I almost missed church this morning. I don't know what all happened. My alarm clock set itself or didn't set itself or something. But anyway, if I'd showed up today without my body, you wouldn't know I was here. You understand what I'm saying? I am not my body. Paul said, I am with you in spirit. What does he mean? He means in my heart, my spirit, my, my, my being. I'm there with you, but he can only be one place at a time really. And, and without your body, no one knows you're around. But friends, when this body goes in the ground, I don't stop. I go right on. That doesn't make me stop. My body is not me. I will be alive in the presence of Jesus. I will still be a thinking, feeling, willing, choosing, emoting person experiencing life. And my body's in the ground. How's that happen? Because I am not my body. I have a body. And it happens to be the way that you recognize me. And it happens to be the way that I communicate with you. I'm phonating right now through my vocal cords. They're, they're vibrating to what my head is telling my mouth to form. And the air is coming out. My tongue and teeth and vocal cords are doing all their little things so that you hear sound waves in a physical world and you get them and you assimilate them. And your mind says, oh, he's saying crazy things up there. Talking about showing up without his body and stuff like that. He's saying weird stuff. Because I am not my body. But I use my body. And when you think about it, in order to function in this world, I have to use my body for everything. And that's why sin gets associated with the flesh. Because we were meant to be people who were driven by the Spirit. And manifested God in the flesh. But when we sinned and that spiritual connection was cut off, we became people who were driven by everything out here. 
But when you start to analyze the fleshly nature, there are things about the carnal nature that have nothing to do with my body. Think of some sins that are not bodily sins, but are fleshly sins. For example, the desire for power. Power is not a bodily thing. Power is a problem in your soul. You want to be in charge. You want to be in control. You want to have power. You want to to have influence. You want to manage things and make stuff happen and be in charge. The world system says the way to do that is to climb to the top of of the totem pole and to exercise authority over everybody. That's the way to do it. Jesus said the way to do it is to become the servant of all people and God will lift you up in due time. That runs counter to our, to our thinking because the world system says, no, you have to do whatever it takes to climb to the top. There's nothing about the body that, that feeds power. But we can't get there without the body. We go to work in an environment that our body tells us, ah, oh, you want to be top dog around this place. We see it with our eyes, we hear it with our ears, we experience the dynamics that are going on in the culture around us, all through our bodies. But power is not a lust that comes from the body, it's a lust that comes from the heart and seat of the personality. I want to do it my way. I read you the words of that song a few weeks ago, I want to do it my way. Pride. Pride is not a sin of the body, it's a sin of the soul. But it's called the carnal nature. Because everything that goes on in this world, when my spirit is cut off from God, happens largely in my exchange with the world. Now that statement is not 100% true because we are influenced negatively by supernatural powers of evil that come in through the spirit gate, but they're, they're bad. Demons and and, and temptation, and, and evil angels, and those kinds of things. But we don't need them to sin. We can sin quite well all by ourselves. Because we're already fallen, we're broken. And so the flesh, in spiritual terminology, has come to refer to that soulish part of man that is driven by the material world around him. Whether it is actually bodily in itself or just uses the body as the means of communication, the flesh is the term that is applied to the soulish nature under the dominion of the world system because it is in that realm that we operate with our bodies. Does that make sense? Are you with me? The flesh, in spiritual terms, is not physical. It is spiritual in my soul, in nature. It is my personality that is in bondage to sin and the carnal nature. And the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life set it aflame with passions. Now, The other reason that we sometimes get confused is that we wonder, does our body cause us to sin? Does the physical body cause you to sin? And the answer to that question again is no. If the body caused people to sin, Jesus could not have been perfect because he had a body. 
And if it causes sin, okay, if it causes sin, then Jesus could not have been perfect. Are you you still there? He had the same human body that Adam had. And Adam, by the way, had a human body that was sinless when he was first made. And a soul that was perfect. And there was no sin in the flesh, in the body. Until after they followed a rebellious course. Well, why do we get our bodies confused with this? First of all, we need to recognize that the body, this body, is amoral. That means it does not have morality of its own. You say, what are you talking about? I, I have all kinds of problems with sin in my body. No, you don't. You have problems in your soul, and you use your body to pursue it. The body does have appetites, but it is basically an amoral thing. It's like a car, or the internet, or a weapon. The internet is a non-moral, an amoral entity. You can surf for porn, and it's evil. Dan and Kalinda Hallberg can use it to communicate with their language helpers halfway around the world, and it's wonderful. It's godly. The Internet's not the problem. It's the person at the keyboard. That's the problem. Okay, it's amoral. You can use a car to drive a neighbor to chemotherapy and love them. And it's a blessing. You can use a car to drive the getaway from the robbery team at the liquor store. And it becomes an instrument of evil. The car is not moral. It's the person driving it. You can use a weapon to defend the righteous against perpetrators of crimes. You can use a weapon to perpetrate a crime. It's not the weapon. Now, nah, just let that one lie. I have thoughts sometimes, and, and I have to check them out. I'm not getting on a political stump. But weapons don't cause problems. People holding them cause problems. Weapons are amoral. They have no morality in and of themselves. And my body is amoral. It does not have a problem. It does have appetites. And unfortunately, the church has really gotten this part all confused. It is normal for me to get thirsty when I need liquid. It is normal for me to get hungry when I need food. It is normal for me to be tired when I'm tired and to want to sleep. It is normal for me to desire sex. And you too. Because we have glands and hormones that function and push that drive there. There wouldn't be a human race if there wasn't a sex drive. It's normal. And, and God made those things. And when he got done making them all and looked at the whole thing, he said, this is very good. The problem comes in the misuse of normal appetites. That's where the problem lies. It's not the thing itself. It's the use to which we put it. And the body now being controlled by the flesh, not the physical one, but the carnal nature 
has lust and desires that run rampant, and our carnal nature seeks to fulfill them in ways that are ungodly. Getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I gave you the illustration last week of bars and pornography and all that kind of stuff, and got everybody excited, and you got all frustrated and had trouble this week, and I'm sorry, but oh well, <laughs> we'll get there eventually. Let me talk about something we all can relate to. It has nothing to do with going to bars or having the internet or uh, whether you drive around the block to avoid hooters. It doesn't have anything to do with that. Let's talk about eating. Okay? How many of you need to eat? That's everybody. How many of you need to eat as much as you eat? Now, don't raise your hand. <laughs> just, just hold on a minute. When I think of gluttony, I do not think of me. Even though I am still, though I've lost about 27 or 28 pounds over this summer, I'm still about 60 pounds overweight. But when I think of gluttony, I do not think of me. When I think of gluttony, I think an image of one of my uncles comes to mind. And I've never had this problem. He weighed about 400 pounds. I'm guessing because I don't really know, but he was big. He was big. Beginning of summer, I weighed almost 300 pounds. And I wasn't as big as him. So he was big. Some of you are saying, wow. I just love it what you learn at church. And, I, and he couldn't breathe very well because he had so much stuff pushing on his lungs. And, and when you're really fat and you sit down, those of you that have never really been fat, you don't know this, but when you're really fat and you sit down, you scrunch everything up, and then your diaphragm gets pushed, and you have even less lung space. So whenever he was sitting down, he breathed through his mouth. Because he couldn't get enough air. But it didn't stop him from eating. And he was a hunter, he loved to hunt, he loved game. And I have a scene that is locked in my memory of him sitting in the dining table. We were visiting family he was sitting at the dining table, and we had T-bone steaks at his house that night. The whole family, I mean, there's like 30 of us there. And I watched him eat four T-bone steaks of about a pound each. And he sat there trying to breathe through his mouth and eat steak, shoveling it into his mouth, and it was sounded like... <laughs> as he put down four steaks and all the trimmings. And it made me sick. And I thought, that's gluttony. I've never been there. I have never in my life eaten that way. In fact, I seldom eat more than one plate of food. Uh, it could be rim to rim, and it might be this high, <laughs> But I seldom eat more than one plate of food. In fact, most of our married life, I've watched my wife, and she often eats more than I do. And she weighs about one-third what I do. 
Her metabolism is amazing. I have the metabolism of a slug and the appetite of a horse, and I think I eat normally, and I gain weight. I could just be in the kitchen breathing the fumes, and I gain weight. It's amazing. What's my point? I have to eat just like you have to eat. But how much you eat and how much I eat is not something that we can formulize. Because every one of us is different. Every one of us is different, and your needs are different from mine. Your metabolism is different from mine. Your, the way you process sugars and the way you handle fats is different from mine. Your needs are different than mine. And I have never been able to lose weight following a diet, ever. Adkins, South Beach, Scarsdale, name it, I can't do it. I've never been able to do it. It's never worked. But whenever I've lost weight, this summer included, you know how I do it? I sit down to eat and I say, God, you tell me what I can have. And tell me when I've had enough. You say, wait a minute, that's, that's too easy. I promise you the Holy Spirit and I read menus together. And when I'm in a restaurant, I'm looking down a menu, I'm saying, Lord, what, what here can I have? It's become even more complicated lately because I've learned that I have a dairy allergy. And I love cheese more than any food on the planet, I think. I absolutely love cheese. I like pizzas from the one in town. The, what is it? Um, no, Giordano. No, it's not. Come on, it's up here on the... Who? I don't know. It's lots of cheese. Lots of cheese. I mean, it comes off... In, in slabs. I love pizza like that. I love, I love all kinds of Mexican food with lots of cheese. I just love it. And I've learned I can't eat it. And I have not eaten dairy in, purposefully. It's amazing what has dairy in it. But I have not purposefully eaten dairy in about four months now, three or four months. And, and I look at it, and you know what? It's just like, I say, boy, I'd like to have that. And the Holy Spirit says, yeah, and you know what's going to happen. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. And several years ago, and by the grace of God, pray for me, because I'm, I'm trying. I, I, you know, I, I'm not picking on people who, who have extra weight. I'm really not right now. I'm just pointing something out. But I'm telling you, some people can carry more than others too, and I can't. I'm, I don't do well when I'm overweight. I am not healthy when I'm overweight. It's not good. And this temple is here to serve me and serve God. Not, not, I mean, it doesn't exist so I can fill it up. It's here to serve God. And when I'm overweight, I don't feel well. And when I don't feel well, I don't have the energy that I need to do the things God's called me to do. So there's a spiritual issue here. But my point is, my body has a normal appetite. How I use that appetite and who disciplines it is up to God as I yield the control to the Spirit. Your bodies get hungry just like mine does. What we put in our mouths when we get hungry is a matter of who's the master. Are you letting your appetite control you? Are you letting your carnal nature control you? 
are you letting the Holy Spirit control you and your body? And you can take that to every other realm of the body. God gave us appetites. You know, he could have made us, my dog eats the same food every, every day. We buy dog food. Old Roy dog food. It's the same every week. It's cheap at Aldi's. And he gets dog food every day. And you know what? He begs for that. When it comes 6 o'clock at night, he wants dog food. He begs for dog food. And, he, and he's happy to get it. He likes it. Imagine what we would be like if we were just designed to eat rice. Or alfalfa. Think of the cows. If, if grass were your menu. God has given us palates to savor flavor. Food is wonderful. He made it all kinds of colors. He made it all kinds of taste. He made it sweet. He made it hot. He made it tantalizingly uh, savory. Some is salty. Some is mild. Some is bitter. But in the right context, it's good. He made all this wonderful stuff and these herbs and spices to doctor everything up. Wow, is that great. God gave us a tasting mouth that we could savor variety. And you can do that in the control of the Spirit. You, you don't have to be under, you know, a diet that says, I can never eat carbs. All I can eat is carbs. Whatever diet you're on, you know, whatever you're doing, God designed us to enjoy many, many things. I'm not sure he had high fructose corn syrup and processed foods in mind, but, but he made us to eat a lot of things. The question is, who's in charge? Our bodies do have appetites. Jesus' body had appetites, but he had a life that was under the control of the Spirit. So have we worn that one out? Do you get it now? As long as I'm in the flesh, I'm going to continue to sin. True or false? Well, what do you mean by flesh? If you mean this body, false, your body's not your problem. If you mean the carnal nature, True, as long as you're under the carnal nature, you're going to continue in sin. You're going to have a trouble. But if you're talking about your body, that's not your problem. The second issue in this statement is, what do we mean by sin? Now I realize I'm starting to sound a little bit like Bill Clinton. And many people who have followed him. Well, it's amazing in the news how many people get, you know, they get hung up over words. Let's redefine this. But there's a legitimate question around the word sin. And it has fueled a debate in church history that, that still remains. Let me give you the, the basics from two different camps who love Jesus. Not a question of how much they love God, it's just a question of how they look at the spiritual life. The basic Calvinistic definition of sin is this. Sin is any transgression of or want of conformity to 
the absolute moral perfection of God. Sin is any breaking of God's morally perfect nature or any failure to live up to God's infinitely perfect nature. That's sin. Is that true or false? Well, let's try the definition on for, for fit. Do you remember the man who wanted to get healed at the pool and he could never get anybody to put him in at the right time? And Jesus came along one day and healed him. And do you remember what Jesus said to him afterwards? Let's try Calvin's definition. God has healed you. Go and from this day forward never again deviate from the absolute infinite perfection of God's holy nature in any way lest something more terrible comes your way. Do you think that's what Jesus meant? Does it work? How about the woman caught in adultery? You remember her? That was a setup, by the way. It's hard to catch people in adultery in the middle of the day. That's a setup. They knew just where to find her. They just knew just who to look for. And why isn't the guy there? Because they paid him off, I think. And set her up, and they bring her to Jesus, and they throw her at his feet. And they say, this woman was caught in adultery. Now the law of Moses says we should stone her. What do you say? And Jesus said, well, you're right. That's what the law says. So tell you what, any one of you here that has never committed any sin, you cast the first stone. Well, that put a damper on the crowd. You know, you could hear rocks dropping to the ground, not being thrown, just kind of... And they kind of slithered off. And finally, Jesus is there with this woman, and all the accusers are gone. And Jesus says to her, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, they're all gone, Lord, there are none. And this is what Jesus says to her, go. And never again deviate from God's absolute moral perfection. Do you think Jesus said that? But what he did say was, go and sin no more. What did he mean? She knew exactly what he meant. You've been a prostitute. Stop it. Don't do that anymore. The guy that wanted to be healed, he knew what he was doing wrong. Jesus said, don't do that anymore. That's what led John Wesley to define sin this way. Sin is a willful transgression against the known law of God. Now, I asked myself this question about 30 years ago or so, maybe more actually. I said, which one is right, Calvin or Wesley? And I started studying the New Testament, and I looked up every verse in the New Testament where the word sin occurred. And here's what I discovered. When sin is used as a noun, describing the entity itself of sin, John Calvin's definition fits most clearly. As in 1 John 1.8, where John says, if we say, we believers say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. And we are. If you say that in my life there is no 
deviation from God's moral perfection. You're nuts. You're deceived. You don't get it. But when you look at sin used as a verb, do not sin lest a worse thing come upon you. John Wesley's definition makes the most sense. Don't do what you know is wrong. That leaves room for a lot of stuff you don't know about. But if you know it's wrong, don't do it. This debate was raging during the Great Awakening between the Calvinists and the Arminians and the Wesleyans. And Wesley didn't help it any because he taught a doctrine called Christian perfection, which other people interpreted as sinless perfection. <laughs> and that just got all the Calvinists really stirred up. I mean, you know, here Wesley's running around talking about Christian perfection, and, and it's got everybody in a stew. And, and, and here's the other, you know, the Catechism says, I sin every day in every way in thought and word and deed. How does this square with what Wesley's saying? So there was a story one time of this woman that came up to Wesley after a message and you know, kind of caught him at the back, like he was standing back there talking, and says, Mr. Wesley, I'll have you know, sir, I sin every day in every way in thought and word and deed. And he looked at her without missing a beat and said, Well, madam, you better stop it. <laughs> Classic clash. But what does the scripture say? The scripture says, <laughs> we have died to the old nature. The scripture says, the power of sin has been broken, the cat has been declawed. The scripture says, we have been buried with Christ and raised with him to walk in newness of life. The scripture says, we are free. And what that means is, I have the power in the resurrected life of Jesus Christ and under the influence of the Holy Spirit to do what I know God is telling me to do every time in obedience. And I do not have to break it. I can walk in obedience to Jesus Christ every day of my life and walk without going astray from what I understand the will of God to be. Now, if you are talking about being perfect in this life, in the absolute sense, you're never going to be. Till you stand in the presence of Jesus in a glorified state, you're still going to have issues in your life that you don't even recognize this morning. But if you're talking about living in obedience to the Holy Spirit every moment of your life, the Scripture says this is possible. This is possible. Now let me just stop and ask you a question. How many of you here think you can live the rest of your life and never again disobey the voice of God in your spirit? How many think you can do that? Don't raise your hand. Just think about it. Doesn't that seem overwhelming? It's overwhelming to you. It's overwhelming to me. So I hope that you're, we're in good company. This is overwhelming. How many of you think you can live the rest of the week and not one time disobey the voice of God? Does that seem overwhelming? It's overwhelming to me too. How many of you think the next time the Holy Spirit nudges you and says, uh-uh, or you ought to do this, 
How many of you think the next time he says that, you can say, yes, Lord? How many can do that? Just the next time the Holy Spirit prompts you. To stop or to start something you should be doing or not doing. Do you you think you can do that the next time? That's the only time you have to worry about, friends. That's your only concern this morning. You don't have to worry about the rest of the week. You don't have to worry about the rest of the year. You don't have to worry about the rest of your life. That's not your problem. All you have to do is the next time the Holy Spirit nudges you, you have to obey him. And let me tell you something. When the Holy Spirit comes, I realize that sounds like I'm talking down to you and, and good homiletics professors say don't ever talk down to your audience. But okay, let me, let me share something with you. Listen up. forgot what I was going to say now. God will speak to your heart. He will let you know. If you want to know, he will let you know. He will lead you. If your eyes are wandering, he'll bring that to mind. If you're anxious about that position at work and you just, oh, if I could just get ahead in a bad way, he'll let you know that. If you're in the midst of some kind of an altercation and you're about to act out in the flesh, not the body, but the flesh. He'll tap you on the shoulder and tell you that. I remember the last time I had a real explosive incident in my flesh. And it's so clear because God is so faithful. Um I have been working, and this, and honestly, I mean, this is this kind of a thing. I'm not saying I haven't sinned in years. Don't hear that. Don't hear that. But I clearly remember this incident, and it was many years ago. Well, actually, there was one a few weeks ago. Come to think of it, <laughs> somebody was tailgating me. I told that story in the eight o'clock service. Well, I'll just go back to that one. Forget the one years ago. I'll go back to the one just a few weeks ago when I had someone tailgating me. Did I tell you that story at ten o'clock? Okay, I'm driving down River Road, and somebody, and, and I'm looking at, I'm trying, I'm looking for fall colors, you know, but I was driving the speed limit, and the speed limit on River Road is about 30 miles an hour, and, and there was this person in a sports car that was right on my bumper. They were so close, I could not see their headlights. I mean, it was like, I, I'm, my rearview mirror and their windshield, that's what I see, and I can tell they're frustrated. They will not get off my bumper. And I'm looking at my speedometer and say, I'm driving the speed limit. And there's no passing. And, they're, and they're, just, they're just irritated. And I'm driving along, and they won't get off. And I'm thinking, brake check. So I set this thing up. I very carefully put my left foot on the brake, but kept my right foot on the accelerator. I wanted to hit the brake hard enough so the lights came on and the car dipped, you know. Like, <gasps> but I wanted to be sure I didn't really slow down <laughs> because they were way too close. And I didn't want to create a problem. So when the opportunity presented itself, that's exactly what I did. But I want to tell you what I heard before I did that. You don't have to do this. But I want to do this. But you don't have to do this. 
but I'm going to do this. And I hit the brakes hard, and I saw her eyes go, and she hit the brakes, and I was driving along merrily because I didn't really slow down, but she hit the brakes, and, and I was just, ah, and then there was, I don't know what she was saying, but it wasn't nice. She didn't tailgate me the rest of the trip down River Road. We got over here to, you know, Chapel Hill. But, and then I thought about it. I could have caused a wreck. I could have caused her to jerk the wheel and swerve into something. I could have hurt somebody. And it was just purely carnal irritation. And the Holy Spirit had warned me. I'm going to tell you something. If you want to walk in the Spirit... He will tell you every time. And in that instant, you have a choice. You don't have to worry about whether you're going to break check somebody next week. You don't even have to think about it until somebody else is tailgating. And you know what? It actually happened to me just a week or so later, like last week. Someone was doing the same thing. And you know what? I remembered the Holy Spirit. It's funny how God speaks in very short sentences. All I heard in my, in my little brain was, Remember. Remember, I remember, and I said, Lord, give me patience. Let me just rest in Jesus. And you know, it's one thing to rest in, it's one thing not to do the deed, but to inside be going, but I said, God, I just want your spirit to reign here. And I had peace and I had calm, and I didn't have the intense desire to hit the brakes, That works for everything, friends. That works for everything. If you want the Holy Spirit to be in charge of your life, He will dynamically guide you. And in the moment, I guarantee it, if you are submitted to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, in the moment, He will tell you. I've talked to married couples, none of them present, None of them absent either at this moment, so don't worry about that. I'll try to figure it out. But I've talked to married couples who get mad and fight and throw things at each other. Maybe some of you do that. I don't know. Well, that's just the way I am. I'm I'm Italian. You know, I'm not picking on the Italians. I'm not picking on you. (laughs) I just said that so Angela, I could get a rise out of Angela, you know. (laughs) That's just my nature. You know, I'm boisterous and outspoken and throwing things? Come on. That's not being Italian. That's being carnal. It's being carnal. Married couples that tell me they throw dishes at each other in their fights. What? Grow up. Grow up. You know, I will promise you that if you're walking in the Holy Spirit and you're in one of those conflicts... And, and, and you want to pick up a glass and throw it, you will hear. You don't have to do that. And if you throw it, do you know why? Well, I'm going to sin as long as I'm in the body. No. The reason you throw it is because you want to. You want to. You're in a conversation, and somebody's really ticking you off, and you've got this clever sarcastic to the jugular response and you just want to get that thing in there and you hear the Holy Spirit say don't say that 
And you have a millisecond of spiritual time to say, yes, Lord. And you know why you say it? Because you say, no, Lord, I want to say this. That's why you do it. Because you want to. Not because you can't help it. Because he's there to help you. Every time, there is no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And with every temptation, God will make a way of escape that you can endure it and escape it successfully. Every time. Do you believe the Bible? Amen? you believe the Bible? Thank you. The Scripture says you do not have to sin when you're faced with temptation. God makes a way out. We don't take it because we don't want to. We do what we want to do. That's what led A.W. Tozer to say, you are as holy as you want to be. You are as holy as you want to be. Remember another passage of Scripture? You shall know the truth, and the truth will set you free. When you get up in the morning, look in the mirror. I want you to look in the mirror, look yourself in the eye, and say, I am as holy as I want to be. Paul Martin, you are as godly today as you want to be. And if you're not godly, it's because you don't want to be. Deal with the truth. You will know the truth. That's liberating, friends. That's liberating. Because then you can go back to God and say, God, you know what? I don't have a sin problem, really, in these levels. I have a lordship problem. I want to be in charge. And I confess that I'm just as holy as I want to be. And, And I don't want to be holy. I like sinning. I like saying what I want to say. I like doing what I want to do. I like getting even when I want to get even. I like looking when I shouldn't look. I like it. That's my problem. Deal with me. I want to come under your lordship. Because every time you're faced... See, this is not a lifelong thing. This is not a week-long thing. This is a right now. In just a few moments, I'm going to pray. And you're going to walk out of here. And and, and just about the time... It's pretty... Unless you've got weird things going on in your head right now... When you, you're, it's pretty easy when you're sitting still in church to keep it together. It's when you get up and start moving around that the problems start, almost immediately. You know, what do you say to each other? What, now I've got everybody self-conscious. But it's the minute you get up, that's when your trouble's going to start, okay? And if you want to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ, you're, you can submit yourself, and you're going to hear the Holy Spirit say, you don't have to say that. You don't have to do that. You don't have to go there. And you're going to have a decision to make. You don't have to worry about the one tonight. You're going to have a decision to make before you leave this room. And you can say yes to God, and the power of the Holy Spirit will kick in. And And He will do through you what you can't do. We have a choice. That's why, listen to verse 12, and here's my conclusion. Listen to verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey its lust. Now, you say, oh, you spent the whole first part of the sermon telling me my body was not the problem, and here it is right in verse 12, reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. Okay, the its there refers to sin, not body. Here's the sentence rephrased. Do not let sin in its lust, reign in your bodies. 
Your body's not the problem, but the sin nature is. But it has been declawed. It has been rendered powerless. You don't have to let it reign any longer because you have been raised in Christ to walk in a new life. You can give this body to Him. That's next week. Don't come back, please. Because this is just laying a foundation for understanding how to make the commitment to God that will enable you to be filled with the Spirit and walk in His power. You can submit this body and its members. We have a choice, friends. We're free in Christ. We have a choice. And I realize this is a tough one. I, this is hard. You know, we've got to pray for each other, help each other out. We really do. But do not think, having begun in the Spirit, you're going to be perfected by the flesh. It isn't rules and regulations that are going to make you better. It's not driving the block around hooters that's going to make you stop lusting. It's going to be living in the Spirit, moment by moment by moment. And when you are about to deviate from the path of righteousness because of something you're about to do or something you ought to do and aren't going to do, the Holy Spirit will prompt you. And the only thing you have to know in that moment is, yes, Lord, take over. Or, no, Lord, I want to do it myself. I don't have time to pursue it. We'll get in there. We'll get there next week. We get into trouble when we try to do it ourselves. Having begun in the Spirit, you think you're going to be perfected in the flesh. We, we think we can. We try. It doesn't work. But remember when the sheet came down, Peter had the dream, the sheet came down. I heard a great missionary statesman preach a sermon on that passage. And I'll never forget what he said. It just stood out so clearly. God said to Peter, arise and eat. And Peter said, no, Lord. And this great missionary speaker said, No one, whoever says Lord, should say no. They preached like that in those days. <laughs> and no one who says no can say Lord. Remember that. If you call him Lord... Say yes to his prompting. If you say no, you just dethroned him. You know the strange thing about this whole deal? When you think you're in charge, you're not. We're only made to be ruled by God or the devil. We're going to be ruled by somebody. So if you don't let God rule you, sin is going to rule you. You're still not free. You're not in charge. You're only free to say yes to God now that you're a Christian. Say yes, Lord. Yes. Father, open our eyes to see the truth. Help us to believe what's possible. And this morning, by your grace, to acknowledge the truth which will set us free. We can walk in Jesus Christ in victory. And we desire to, in Jesus' name, amen.